Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Grace Church here at the Medina East Campus as uh, we are beginning a brand new series today we're really, really excited about that we are calling the Everyday Revolution. And uh, I just want to kind of reiterate something Sarah Beth mentioned a moment ago, and that is if you are a guest with us here today, if it's your first time here, hey, thanks so much for being with us here at the Medina East Campus as we're starting this new series. We count it a privilege that you would take some time on your Sunday morning and you would carve that out to be here and, uh, and just to, to be with us. And so thanks for being here. And I, I would just say, if you are a guest, I really think you came on an awesome Sunday. And the reason for that is because today we are beginning a brand new series. And we oftentimes say uh, here at Grace Church that a series is really sort of like one long extended conversation uh, that we have over the course of several weeks. And so you're sort of catching us at the beginning of a new conversation. So you came at an awesome time. And so if you're investigating Grace Church, hopefully uh, you get a chance to get to know us. We would love to get a chance to get to know you. And we would actually even encourage you that as we're beginning this series here today, kind of this conversation, uh, that maybe if you're investigating Grace, that you would just lock in for the duration of this whole series, kind of hear the whole conversation. And that would really allow you to kind of get a good feel for what Grace Church is all about. So thanks for being here for that. Like I said, today we're starting a new series called The Everyday Revolution. And as we're jumping into this series, as a way to kind of tee it off, let me just encourage you to grab your Bibles right from the very beginning and go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Okay, so we're going to be kind of starting the whole series off. We're going to be looking together at Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them and turn there. And so if you brought a Bible with you, uh, Colossians is in the New Testament. It's a very small book. So if you can't find it, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents at all. So go ahead and do that if you need to. Colossians chapter 3. If you did not bring a Bible with you here this morning, that is no problem. We actually have some Bibles for you. And you should be able to find those in the chairs underneath you or in front of you, those black Bibles. And you can turn to page 822. And uh, in those Bibles, that's where you're going to find Colossians 3. And so we would kind of encourage you to take your Bibles and do that if you would. And then let me just say one other thing, and that is if you're a guest with us today and you don't have a Bible, like if you just flat out don't own a copy of God's Word, we want you to have one, and so you can just take one. Uh, make that kind of a gift from us to you. Uh, you can have one of our Bibles. So Colossians chapter 3, go ahead and uh, turn there. As you're finding Colossians chapter 3, maybe I can kind of start here. So my guess is that um, depending on when you were born, which I know in a room this size, many of us were, represent probably all types of different eras here, but depending on when it is that you were born, my guess is that if I asked you the question, how would you define uh, the, the typical, or, or the, how would you kind of define or how would you envision the way the typical American family should look? If I was to ask you that question, my guess is depending on the, the era in which you were born, you might have a different answer to that question. And the reason that I say that it matters when you were born, kind of the time when you were born, why that's important is because, as many of you know, when you look at even just the past 50 or 60 years uh, in our country, and you look at what the average family has looked like over the past 50 or 60 years, you will see uh, that there is a rapid evolution of the average family. And so, for example, even if you just look at the television family uh, from the 1950s and 1960s to today... Uh, you can see that there has been a rapid evolution of what average normal household living looks like, right? So for example, if you're a person who maybe was born and maybe you grew up in the 50s and 60s, kind of in that era, and I asked you what, what did the average household look like back then or what should the average household look like, you might give me a picture that might resemble what you would have seen on TV back in, the, in those times. So you might think of shows, for example, like Leave it to Beaver. Uh, you might think of, of shows like the Donna Reed show. Uh, you might think of shows 
knows like father's, father knows best. And of course, what do you see in these, in these sitcoms? What you see is you kind of see the same average picture of a household. And, and what is that picture? Well, it looks something like this, right? You have a, you have a stay-at-home mom. Uh, you have a working, breadwinning father. Uh, you have kids that are mostly well-behaved. And you have like a white picket fence. And that, for the most part, kind of characterized the average middle-class American family in the 60s, in the 50s, and in the 60s. And so if you grew up in that era, that might be a picture that you have in your mind of what you believe the average household should look like, right? That might be the picture. Well, of course, as you watch television and and as you kind of look at the evolution of the American family, you see that in the 70s, kind of in the 60s and 70s, that gave rise to a slightly different evolving family. And so you had shows like The Brady Bunch, right? And some of you guys might know The Brady Bunch. If you're not familiar with The Brady Bunch, it's, it's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls, right? And you guys know the story, right? And, and, but the Brady Bunch, and what was the Brady Bunch? Well, it was actually not too dissimilar from the families of the, the 50s and 60s. Again, you had a working father, breadwinner. You had a stay-at-home mom. But now for the first time in television history, you had a blended family uh, where you had, uh, you had children from two different marriages that were kind of represented in one family. And so you kind of saw that evolving. Of course, then that kind of led, the 70s sort of led into the 80s. In the 80s, you had shows like Growing Pains, you had shows like Family Ties, you had shows like The Huxtables, The Cosby Show, and all of a sudden, you started to see again the evolving of the family, and this time, it was more with gender roles. And so, I think Growing Pains was the first time in uh, at least American television history where you had a stay-at-home dad and you had a working mom. And so, you kind of saw that. Uh, With the Huxtables, you had two, uh, a father and a mother, who both were professionals, right? They both had professional jobs working in professional industries. And so, again, you just began to see the evolution of the family in that. And, of course, that kind of led into the 90s. In the 90s, this kind of gave way to some of the more unconventional households. So, you had shows like Full House, right, where it was a story of a a, a single dad who was raising three girls with the help of his brother-in-law and his best friend. And, of course, there was the annoying neighbor, right? I don't know what it was about the 90s. There was always an annoying neighbor, right? That was Urkel and Kimmy Gibbler and all kinds of terrible things that happened back in that time. But very unconventional family. Or, or uh, you might also remember kind of in that same era, you had a show like Boys, Boy Meets World. So if you, if you grew up watching that show, uh, what did you have? Well, you had kind of the average suburban family, but then you also had divorced families and you also had, you know, a kid with hippie parents, and all of that was sort of a hodgepodge. You sort of saw that. And then, of course, in the 2000s, you started to get shows like Malcolm in the Middle. Some of you maybe grew up watching Malcolm in the Middle, and you might remember this kind of gave us, the, 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 in the early 2000s, the family image where now you had kind of the domineering authoritative mother, and you had the idiot dad who basically was like another kid, and that was sort of the picture of the American family for the better part of the early 2000s was uh, that the mom was the domineering, authoritative, competent one. Dad was kind of the idiot, basically like another kid, kind of like the family guy dad. That was sort of the picture. And now, of course, here we are in 2017, and now we have shows that really show a whole blend of families. So you have shows like The Modern Family today where, of course, it tracks different families where now you have interracial marriages, which you would have never seen in the 50s and 60s. You have same-sex marriages, which you would have never seen in the 50s and 60s. Uh, multiple divorces, ex-husbands, ex-wives, uh, you know, kids from all over, the, just a whole, that runs the whole gamut. And so shows like Modern Family, shows like The Trophy Wife show very, very, very uh, diverse, different sorts of family structures. And it's fascinating because 
uh, what, what, uh, what some uh, professionals in, in, in research analysis have said is they said that, that since 2014, in America, there is now no such thing as an average family. Uh, that if you go back to 1950 and 1960, that over 65% of households in America were comprised of a stay-at-home mom, a working dad, and the whole family structure together. That was over 65% of homes in America in 1950 and 1960. Today, uh, researchers would say, no, there is no such thing as an average family. It's, it's a hodgepodge. It's all, you know, there, is, there is no normal anymore. And, and the reason that I, I say that, the reason that I'm drawing your attention to the evolving family in America is because the evolution of the family has not just been something that's happened over the past 50, 60, 70 years in our country. This is something that has happened globally, and this is something that has happened historically. And so I say that because depending on when you were born and where you were born, you would have most likely a very different picture of what everyday life would look like depending on when and where you were born, in the country, in the world, in space, in time. So if you were born 100 years ago, 200 years ago, if you were born on the other side of the world, if you were born 1,000 years ago, that would greatly paint for you what you would think that the average family and what the average household and what everyday life would look like. Now, now the reason I say all of that is because is to kind of explain that in this series, what we want to do is this. We want to talk about this, this idea. Is there, at least according to the Bible and according to God's word and what it teaches, is there an ideal structure for everyday life? Is there an ideal way to pursue marriage? Is there an ideal way to, to do parenting? Is there an ideal way to interact in relationships? Is there, ideal, is there, is there a, an ideal in, in which gender roles should kind of play out? Does the Bible actually teach an ideal? Or are we all just kind of susceptible to whatever our culture teaches us and whatever the culture says is what's right and that's just kind of what we adapt to? Or is there something different? Does the Bible, what does the Bible speak into everyday life and specifically into the everyday household as it relates to our relationships and marriage and parenting and singleness and so on and so forth. And so we're going to be looking at that in this series together. And like I said, I'm super excited about going through this together. And the way that we're going to do this is by looking at something that the Bible talks about very frequently throughout many different passages that is sometimes referred to as the household codes. Okay. So here's what we're going to be doing in this series. Again, today, today we're just kind of teeing it up. But today, what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be looking together at what the New Testament calls the household codes, okay? And what are the household codes? We're going to talk about that, but basically the household codes are a bunch of different passages that you find, that you'll find all throughout the New Testament that basically talk about everyday life. They talk about things like marriage and parenting and, and even singleness, and they talk about gender roles, and they talk about relationships and all kinds of different things like that you will see in the household codes. And like I said, you will find these passages all throughout the New Testament, but one of the clearest and most straightforward places that you find a household code is in the passage that I had you turn to today, which is Colossians chapter 3. So in Colossians 3, you guys have the passage in front of you. I just want to show you, just as we kind of introduce this whole thing, what a standard typical household code would look like. All right, so we're going to look at this together. We're going to look at verse, uh, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 18. And I'm going to read the whole thing. So I'm going to read from, from chap- chapter 3, verse 18, down to chapter 4, verse 1. And then we're going to go back and we're going to do some explaining because you'll see that there is some explaining that's going to need to be done. All right, so let's take a look at the household code. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. 
Children, obey your masters in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And then if you go down to chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you have a master in heaven. Okay, so here you have really what is a very standard, very straightforward household code. And you will find these all throughout the New Testament. Now, this probably goes without saying, but it is probably really obvious when you first read a passage like this that this is a deeply controversial and it is a deeply confusing passage of Scripture, especially in a culture like ours, right? Uh, This passage is one that is oftentimes used not to endorse Christianity, uh, but this is often a passage that is used to discredit Christianity. And, and I think that that's, at first glance, that is extremely reasonable, right? Because there is a lot in this passage that in our culture we choke on. There is a lot that's said in this passage that to us is difficult and is at first glance extremely offensive, right? So namely, I'll just name a few things. For example, a few hard things, a few things that we have a hard time with in this passage. First and foremost, verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, Right? You want to become the most unpopular person in the room real fast? Tell people that that is your favorite verse and just watch what happens as a result of it, right? This is a difficult verse for our culture. This is very difficult. We live in a a post-women's liberation society. We live in a society where we fight for gender equality, right? And so when we look back at passages like this where it says that wives are to submit, this is not a popular word, right? Submit yourselves to your husbands. This seems sexist. This seems chauvinistic, right? It seems like all types of things. And, we're, and, and a lot of people will look at that and say, see, the Bible is regressive. The Bible is outdated. The Bible is trying to pull us backwards. It's anti-progress, And so we'd look at passages like this, we'd have a hard time with it. Another thing that we struggle with in the household codes, and maybe not as much as this one, but but we also struggle with, is this one. Children, obey your parents and everything. And I would say that in our society today, words like this, we don't tend to like very much. So obey is a prickly word. Uh, The idea of obedience has sharp edges to it. You know, when you read modern-day parenting magazines or parenting articles, you you won't see obedience as much as you're going to see words like nurture, right? You'll see words like consensus. Those tend to be the words that are used more now than obedience. And yet here you see that. And so we're like, man, that's, that's tough. And then, of course, you have this whole thing, right? Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything. And, man, you, you bring that into 21st century, uh, you know, Western society like we live in today here in America, and we live in a, a post, you know, abolition of slavery period of time. And so we look at that, we say, man, what is that all about? Like, is the Bible condoning slavery? Is the Bible saying that it's okay to have slaves and that, that slaves should be obedient, that God wants slaves to be obedient to their masters and everything, everything? Seriously? And you see, what, what happens is a lot of people will take a passage like this, and many have, and they'll say, you see, this is ample reason for us to say that the Bible, the Bible is just archaic and it is just regressive and it is outdated and therefore uh, we should just dismiss the whole thing. This is proof that the Bible is out of date and it's out of touch. And, and so that does beg a real good question. And that's this then. So how are we to approach a passage like this? How are we to understand a passage like this? And, and here's the thing, right? If you guys have been coming out to the Medina East Campus for a while, if you've been here, uh, you've probably heard us talk about this, but we talk about the importance of whenever you read the Bible, 
whenever you read the Bible, it is so essential that you understand what the context of the passage you're reading is. It's so important because context determines meaning. And so if you want to understand the context of something, you have to understand both the historical and the cultural context in which something was written. So you have to remember this. You have to remember that Colossians and the other household codes that we find in the Bible were written in first century Greco-Roman times. And that is really important because if you don't understand first time Greco-Roman first century Greco-Roman times, you're susceptible to not understanding what lies behind the heart of some of the things that are said here, right? So, so here's what, what I want to do today, because again, this is just an introduction. And so if at the end of our talk today, uh, you feel like, man, you know, there's, I have a lot of questions, or I feel like there's some stuff that was still left unanswered, or, you know, there's still com- some concerns that I have, that's okay, because again, this is an introduction. And our hope is for the next several weeks uh, that we'll be able to take some of the ideas that we, we kind of uh, lay a foundation for here at the beginning, and we'll kind of unravel those uh, throughout the series. But here's what I want to do, okay? So today, I want to lay some foundation Uh, on the household codes, because that's what we're going to be studying in this series. We're going to be studying the household codes. And I want to talk about really three things. So the first one is, what are the household codes exactly? Okay, so what are they? Where did they come from? Where did the household codes come from? And then the last one is, how are we to understand them today? All right, how are we to understand them? So I just want to lay down some foundation. That's it. And so because of that, here's what I need you to do today. I need you to put on your thinking cap. Okay, because we're going to go back into this culture, and I need you to understand some stuff. And so we're going to go back. So I need you to put on your thinking cap. And, he, and here's why that's so important. Because in the weeks to come, we're going to get very, very, very practical. And we're going to talk about marriage, and we're going to talk about parenting, and we're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about relationships and gender identity, things that impact you right where you live. Okay? But here's what I need you to understand. In order for us to get there, we have to lay down some foundation first. And so we're going to have to do that today. All right? And kind of look back at what were the household codes, where did they come from, and how are we to understand them. So we're going to unpack that together. All right? So let's just start at the beginning. Basically speaking, what are the household codes? Let me see if I can give you a definition. All right? Now, the term um, household code that we use today uh, for these passages of Scripture that look like Colossians 3 actually was a term that was first coined by Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther, some of you might know, he was a German theologian. He was uh, known to be the father of the Protestant Reformation. And so he was the first one who labeled these passages of Scripture the household codes. But of course, he was German, so he didn't say household codes. He actually used this word, uh, the word hostafelin, which I'm not German. It's probably obvious. I don't know how to pronounce that, but I'm guessing it's something like hostafelin. You can correct me later. But basically, that meant house table. And so he was the first one who used this term house table, which is trans- translated to us as household codes. Now, by the way, the German word hastafelen is not to be confused with the, the German word uh, for awesome, which some of you might know is a Hasselhoff, right? So that's sheer awesomeness. That's a fact, by the way. You can look that up if you want to, all right? So, but, but this actually originated with Martin Luther. He called them the house tables or the household codes. So what is a household code? All right, here's just a, a basic definition. A household code is a code of conduct for various members of a, of a given household. So what it is, it's a code of conduct, all right? It's basically a, 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 a code of how do different people within one household relate to one another, that's really what it is. It's, it's how, should, how should the different relationships of a household interact with each other? And so that, that's a household code. And like I mentioned, you find this throughout many different passages of Scripture. And so here's the passages that you will find the household codes in. 
You will find them in Ephesians chapter 5. This is actually the most extensive household code in the entire New Testament. You will find it in 1 Peter, which was written by Peter. So both the Apostle Paul and Peter wrote household codes. Colossians, we just looked at that passage. That was written by the Apostle Paul. Titus, which was also written by the Apostle Paul. And then it's sprinkled through 1 Timothy, which was also written by the Apostle Paul. And so here you have kind of a collection of all of the passages where you will find the household codes. Now, in this series, we are going to be surveying and looking together at all of these passages. Okay, so this is what we're going to be digging from as we kind of look together at this series, the Everyday Revolution. And, and, and the relationships that are covered in the household codes, really it's looking at five different relationships. And here's the five relationships that it's looking at. It's looking at how husbands relate to wives and how wives relate to husbands, okay? The household codes deal with parenting, so how parents should relate to their children, how children should relate to their parents. It deals with slaves and masters, which I know in our culture creates a whole bunch of problems, and we're going to talk about that as the series goes on. Uh, They they had a very different understanding of what slavery would have been in their time uh, that we tend to think about it in our culture because of what's happened uh, just even the past couple hundred years here. Um, And then it deals with older and younger. And so generations, how should older generations interact with younger generations? How should younger generations interact with older generations? And then, of course, it also deals with gender issues, gender role, gender identity, uh, gender kind of considerations that's all dealt with with men and women. And so all of this is sort of contained in the household codes. Now, now here's the thing I really want you to understand about the household codes, okay, because this is so important. I think this will help demystify some of the confusion and honestly, some of, some of, the, uh, some of the, the um, controversy behind the household codes in the Bible. And that's this. Here's what I want you to understand. The household codes did not originate with Christianity. All right, now, I think this is really important. The household codes that you see in the Bible, they, they, the, 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 they, they do not originate in the Bible. And what I mean to say by that is that the first time you see the household codes is not in the Bible. And it's not the only time you see the household codes. Right? In other words, I'll put it this way. If you were to take a time machine and you were to go back to 1950, you would see that there was an average American household. And that looked like a stay-at-home mom, a working dad, a white picket fence. And that was the standard American family back in 1950. Now, we don't live in a time like that. You might find some families like that still, but for the most part, that's not the average family. Now, now here's, what I, here's, what, here's, what, here, here's where that kind of comes in. If you were to get in that same time machine, and you were to go to back to first century Greco-Roman times, which is when the household codes would have been written, right? If you would go back there, you would see that it was a very, very, very different household than we would be used to in our time. And what did the average household look like back in first century Greco-Roman times? Well, the, the, in first century Greco-Roman times, the average household had husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, very normal back in this time. Uh, that, in fact, uh, some commentators and historians point out that the average household back in first century Greco-Roman times could have had as much as 20, 30 people at one time. It would have included uh, husband and wife, would have included kids, would have included slaves. That would have been part of the household that lived under the same roof. It would have had older and younger generations. Oftentimes, uh, you know, you would have mom live with you or you would have, you know, the, your, your uncle live with you or whatever. It was kind of a normal thing back in this time. And then, of course, there was different gender roles that would be considered in that home as well. And, and what, what I just mentioned is but the household codes, what those dealt with was how these different relationships interacted with each other. 
And the original household codes that we have did not stem from the Bible. And so what I mean by that is if you were to go back to first century Greco-Roman times, you would see that historians, you would see that philosophers and politicians all had household codes. And so, for example, Philo. Philo was a Jewish philosopher in the first century, and he had a household code uh, that he, that he uh, gave to the people. Um, uh, different philosophers like Philo, different politicians, different historians. Josephus was a first century historian. He had a household code. In fact, probably the most famous household code that we have back from this time actually came from a couple hundred years before the Apostle Paul, and that was from Aristotle. Aristotle actually has the first known household code that we've seen. It's in his book, Politics. And like I said, politics was written a few hundred years before the Apostle Paul, but let me show you what Aristotle said. So check this out. Here's what Aristotle wrote in his book, Politics. He said, seeing then that the state is made up of households, before speaking of the state, we must speak of the management of the household. The parts of the household, uh, the, po- the parts of household management correspond to the persons who compose the household, and a complete household consists of slaves and freemen. Now watch what he says. Now we should begin by examining everything in its view, fewest possible elements, and the first and the fewest possible parts of a family are, notice, master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. All right, so this is Aristotle, and Aristotle says, if you want to build a good society, it's all built on households. And he says, and if you want to have a good household, you have to look at the household and its fewest possible components. And he says, the fewest possible components of a household back in this time, master and slave, husband and wife, father and children, right? Now, I want you to notice what Aristotle says next. This is in his book, Politics, again. Here's what he says. He says, the male is by nature superior and the female is inferior. Now, this is back in in first century Greco-Roman times, even before that. He wrote this 200, 300 years before this, but this is the way that they would have viewed things. The male is by nature superior, the female is inferior, and the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. And so this is Aristotle, right? And the Aristotle's philosophy that he put forth in politics would have painted what the first century world would have looked like. And so what he's, what he's advocating here for Aristotle is what the average household would have looked like back in this time. And what the average household would have looked like back in first century Greco-Roman times is it would have been something that historians now call pater familias, okay? And pater familias, by the way, is just a really fancy pants word. And it's just a Latin word that means father. That's what pater means. Familias means family. It was a dad family. And so in other words, back in first century Greco-Roman times when the Apostle Paul would have been writing the household codes, he was writing into a family structure in which the average family was a pater familias, which meant that basically it was a male-dominated house, that the man of the house was considered uh, the one who, who was superior to everyone else, everyone else was inferior to him, and everyone else's role in the household was defined by how they related to the man of the house or to the father of the house. That was how it sort of worked. So I know that might sound a little bit heady. And so let me see if I can just draw for you a little bit. If you were born back in this time, what would the average household look like? And here's how it would look, okay? So like I said, it was a pater familias, which meant that it was a father-driven house. And so basically the man of the house, the father of the house, the husband of the house was the one in which the whole family was structured around. Okay? And so every other person in the family, if you can imagine it like this, they were basically like a pillar. And their job was to support and submit to the male figure. That was the way the family would function back in this time. And so, for example, mothers, their jobs, wives, their job was to submit to their husband. 
Children, their job was to obey their parents. Slaves, their role was to be obedient to their masters. And so if you were born back in this time, in first century Greco-Roman times, into a family like this, your role in that family, if you were born in this family, would be to submit and to support the man of the house. Unless you were the man of the house. If you were the man of the house, then your, your job was to rule over everybody else. That's kind of the way that the household structure would have been back in first century Greco-Roman times. And see, here's what Aristotle would say. Aristotle said that, he said that if you want to have a thriving society, that society is built on the building blocks of a, of a family. And so if you, if you don't have strong families, you don't have a strong society. And so here's what Aristotle said. He said, every family needs to be structured this way. Because if families are all structured this way, then all of society will be healthy. And so basically, here's what he said. If you could just kind of draw out what Aristotle said. He said, as you have a paterfamilias, so this is a father-driven house. He said, as society is built of all of these, basically, the betterment of society is built upon the backs of healthy households that are kind of, kind of built on this structure. He would call society the polis. That's what Aristotle would call it. And so, so I say that to say this, that the reason back in this time that a wife would submit to her husband was ultimately out of reverence for the state. And so a wife would look at her job as submitting to her husband as her civic duty to help build a better society. All right. The reason that a slave would be obedient to his master back in this time was not just because that's what he should do. It was because he viewed it as his civic responsibility, that in so doing, he was playing a part in building a stronger society. Now, again, that might sound a little ethereal. So let me see if I can give you just a a, a small illustration to kind of help illustrate maybe how the people back in this time would have thought, all right? So I heard this story um, a little while ago about President John F. Kennedy So John F. Kennedy, some of you might remember, or maybe you read in your history books, uh, back in the early 60s, he made that declarative statement where he basically said, as a nation, United States, he said, our goal is that by the end of the decade, by 1970, we want to put a man on the moon. And that's what JFK said. And so it was this whole space race thing. And so he made this nationwide goal. We're going to put a man on the moon. And the whole nation rallied around that goal. And so there's this story in 1962 where JFK apparently was, um, he was taking a tour of Cape Canaveral. And so he was talking to different people. I guess he had this opportunity to talk to a janitor. So he saw this janitor at Cape Canaveral. He was pushing, pushing a cart, you know, washing floors or whatever. And so JFK went up to this guy and he said, he said, uh, he said hello, my name is John F. Kennedy. I am the president of the United States of America. And he asked the guy what his name was and the guy gave him his name. And then allegedly, uh, John F. Kennedy asked this janitor, he said, what is your job? What is it that you're doing? And the man said to him, and this is what he is reported to being, have said, he said, sir, my job is to help put a man on the moon. And, and, and you hear for a minute, when, when you, when you, when you, if you can hear that, I think you can understand a little bit of the way these people thought. And here's why. Because here's a janitor, right? A man who is organizationally the lowest. He's pushing a cart, he's washing floors. And yet in his mind, he views his job as ultimately being something that is helping to the greater good of, putting, of the goal of putting a man on the moon, right? Even though he's never going to step foot in a spacecraft, even though he's never going to walk on the moon himself, he views his position and what he's doing as he's cleaning the floors as an integral part to the greater goal of putting a man on the moon. Now, that is exactly, if you can understand that, that's exactly the way the people back in this time thought. The reason that I submit to my husband, the reason that I obey my master, the reason that I do those things is out of reverence for society. 
that we will have a greater society, that we will have a stronger polis, is what Aristotle would teach. Now, the reason I say all of that is because I'm just trying to illustrate to you that this, to us, is extraordinarily foreign. Uh, we, as a culture, do not think like this at all. We live in a very different society. We live in 21st century, Western, individualistic America. And if I, could, if I could speculate, I would say, if you could paint a picture of what our society looks like today in comparison to theirs, I would say our society might look a little bit more like this, all right? We don't have father-driven families anymore. Right now, what we celebrate the most is the individual. It's an individualistic society, and for, for what we would say is that we would say that everything should be built around you. It's a me-driven culture, right? And so I believe in our culture, the way that we would draw it out is we would say that every relationship in your life should support you. And that's kind of the way that we view it, right? And so, so for example, our culture, advertently or inadvertently, teaches us this all the time. And maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, but our culture basically teaches us that if you have a dream and if you have an ambition or you have a lifestyle decision that you want to make and there are people in your life who don't affirm that decision or don't support you in that decision, then, then, you, are, then you are completely validated in dismissing those people from your life if you want to. So, for example, if you have a dream or you have an ambition or you have a desire or a lifestyle that you want to live and your parents don't approve of that, we live in a society that would tell us inadvertently or maybe even just outright that you should just ignore your parents and you should follow your dreams and you should do what you want and don't let anyone tell you what you can and you cannot be. If you can dream it, you can be it, right? That is the mantra of our culture. I mean, have you seen the Croods, right? Have you seen Moana? Have you seen, you know, Zootopia? I know that I, I have little kids, you can tell, because all the movies I'm mentioning are kids' movies. But what is the basic theme of those movies? Have you thought about it? What is the basic theme of those movies? Hey, hey, little bunny, you want to be a police officer? That makes all the sense in the world. You do it. It doesn't matter what your parents say. Just go do what you want to do. You can dream it, you can do it, right? Hey, little cave girl, it's crazy to go outside of your cave. You might get killed. I know your parents don't want you to do it, but you want to do that? You do what's best for you, right? You go ahead and you chase after it. Hey, little girl, you, the ocean's calling you, right? And your parents keep telling you not to go in the ocean because it's dangerous. But you should listen to the crazy lady who keeps telling you to go to the ocean, right? That's Moana. And what, what is all that? It's basically saying individualism. It's about you. It's about you. And so if your parents don't agree with your lifestyle or they don't agree with your decisions, they don't agree, then you know what? Then you can dismiss your parents and you can replace them with somebody else. Someone else can be your authority figure, Right? We live in a society that tells us, what do they tell us about marriage? Well, if you're married or if you're looking to get married, we live in a culture that tells us the reason that you have a spouse is for your fulfillment, is for your romantic gratification, is for your compatibility. That's what they exist for. And if at any point in your marriage, your spouse is no longer meeting your needs, that is ample reason enough for you to leave the marriage. Why? Because if you are not happy, your happiness is the most important thing. And if you're not happy... You should leave your spouse and you should find someone else that will make you happy. You can just replace that person. You can just replace them, right? We live in a society that will even go as far to tell us that if you want to have kids and you find out that you're pregnant, but it's inconvenient for you, if it's at an inconvenient time or it doesn't necessarily mesh with the goals that you have in your life, it's completely reasonable for you to terminate the pregnancy. Because, hey, man, whatever's, whatever makes the most sense for you, it's, 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 it's your life, it's your body, 
You can do what you, we live in a society that tells us all of that. We even live in a society that goes as far to say that you should have a pet that satisfies your needs, right? And so we have people that are like, well, you know, I really like the golden retriever because they're extremely docile, but they shed too much. So I like the poodle because they don't shed. So you know what? Let's genetically modify a dog and we'll have the golden doodle, right? It's docile and it's clean and it's an animal. So that does it, right? And so everything serves our needs, unless you have a cat. Then the cat thinks it's God and you serve it, right? <laughs> that's just how that works, right? <laughs> but all of that is built on the foundation of, in our culture, it all serves individualism. We're all serving individual. What we are all saying is that the most important thing is that everyone has the freedom to be themselves, to define what's right and what's wrong for themselves. And that's the culture that we live in. We live in a drastically different culture than they would have back in this time. Now, Here's what I really want you to understand, because the difference between that culture and this culture helps us understand the household codes. And here's what I really want you to get, that, that what is shocking to you and I as 21st century individualistic Americans about the household codes would not have been shocking to them. And this is equally as important. What was shocking to them, because the household codes that the Apostle Paul and Peter would have written in the first century would have been shocking to these people, but what was shocking to them is not shocking to us. So let me explain what I mean. Here's what's shocking to us in our culture about the household codes. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands. We talked about that already. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. These, are, these statements are shocking to us. They seem regressive. They seem outdated. They seem archaic, okay? But here's what I want you to know. Back in these times, this was not shocking to them at all. None of that was shocking. And so if you went back to this time and you said, hey, uh, wives, submit to your husbands, wives would have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, we hear that all the time. Aristotle taught that. Philo taught that. Josephus taught that. That's what our whole society is built on. So, yeah, if I went back to this time and I said, slaves, obey your masters and everything, you'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, my slaves, totally. My dad's got 10 of them. It's normal. And, yeah, I know they're supposed to submit to, to their master. That's what everyone is told to do. That's the foundation of a great society. That's what they would think. That's, that's shocking to us. It wasn't shocking to them. But here's what I want you to notice. Here's what would have been shocking to them. The Apostle Paul, when he writes the household codes, he directly addresses wives, children, and slaves. Now that, would, that would have been shocking to them. And the reason is because back in those days, uh, if Aristotle, philosophers, politicians, they would say, you don't ever directly address wives, slaves, and women. Why? Because they're inferior. They don't, they don't really count all the way as, in fact, Aristotle even said that he believed that wives and slaves didn't have souls or full, they didn't have the total capacity of the soul, and children only had partial souls. They were like growing souls, and so you didn't treat them like real people, and so you didn't address wives and children and slaves. You didn't do that, and so when the apostle Paul comes in and he directly addresses wives, slaves, and children, he's approaching them with dignity, He's at, it's almost as if he's saying, you are a responsible agent in, in, in all of this, right? And another thing that would have been shocking to these people is that the Apostle Paul doesn't just directly address wives, children, and slaves, but he actually gives instructions to the men and how they should lead. And so look at this. He says, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh to them. And that would have been earth-shattering to these people. Aristotle and the other teachers with the household codes, they didn't give a rip how husbands treated their wives. They didn't care. 
that was of no importance to them. They said, hey, look, as long as your wife is being submissive to you, that's all that matters. I don't care how you treat your wife. She's inferior to you. But all of a sudden, the apostle Paul comes in. He says, husbands, you should love your wives. And you, in fact, he'll go on in Ephesians chapter five and he'll say, you should sacrifice and you should serve your wife like Jesus serves and sacrificed for the church. Man, that would have been earth shattering to these people back then. Revolutionary to them. He says this, fathers, don't embitter your children. They'll become discouraged. And again, this would have been something that would have been shocking to these people back then. Why? Because, because the, the, the philosophers and the household codes back in this time, they didn't give a rip how you treated your kids. As long as they stay in line, that's all that really matters. That's what they would teach you. But now the Apostle Paul comes and he says, fathers, look, don't exasperate your kids. Don't, don't, don't provoke them to anger. He says, don't embitter your kids. They're going to be discouraged. All of a sudden, there's consideration towards other people. He says this, masters provide for your slaves what's right and fair. He says, think about them. Be just, be right, be fair. And this would have been, again, this would have been earth shattering to these people back in this time. And, and what is the Apostle Paul doing here? Well, here's what I believe he's doing. I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is he is advocating for, back in this time, a revolution. He's saying, I'm asking for an everyday revolution. And, and this is a revolution that doesn't, that doesn't, cause an uprising against politics. This isn't, this isn't a, 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 you know, this isn't a revolution that is like, you know, some kind of battle cry down with the man, you know, we're going to rebel against the system. That's not what this is. This is an everyday revolution where the apostle Paul is really answering this question. He's answering the question, how does the gospel transform everyday life? And he's answering that question to a first century Greco-Roman society. See, in this passage, it's really important that you understand the apostle Paul is not giving his opinion on whether or not he thinks slavery is right or not. That's not what he's doing in this passage. What he's doing in this passage is he's talking to people who came to know Jesus and they're saying, hey, I came to know Christ and I'm a slave. So what am I supposed to do now? And the Apostle Paul says, everyday revolution. And let's talk about how you live a different way now that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ, how is that going to transform the, the way you live today? See, back in this time, you had people who were slave masters, people who were harsh to their slaves that were coming to know Jesus. And they were coming to the Apostle Paul and they were saying, Paul, I know Jesus and I'm a slave master now. So what am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to live now as a result of that? And Paul says, listen, it's an everyday revolution, and the gospel is going to transform your everyday life where you live here and now. So here's the thing. Here's the final question that I think we have to deal with, and then, and then we'll be done for today. But the final question is this. So, okay, so what do we do then with the household codes? What do we do with passages of the Bible like this? Well, I think that we really only have three options. And I want to suggest that two of them are bad and one of them is a good option. And, and what are they? So here, here's the first option. Option number one. So we can look at a passage like this and we can say, well, that was then and this is now, right? So back then, you know, it was the whole patrifamilias and it was a male-driven world and, you know, you had slaves and you had all that kind of stuff. That was then and this is now. Doesn't apply anymore. Doesn't apply. So we should dismiss those passages. They're, you know, they're, they're just irrelevant. They have nothing to do with us. So let's just dismiss those passages of the Bible. Maybe dismiss the Bible altogether, because it, it, the whole thing might be outdated. But if we don't dismiss it, then let's just focus on the passages of the Bible that re apply to us right now. So like the love and the forgiveness and like that kind of stuff. Like let's focus on that and let's dismiss those passages. Okay, that's option one. Option two, which by the way, I think option one's a bad idea. Option two is this. 
Let's take that passage back then and let's apply it immediately, literally today, right? So the Bible says it, I believe it, let's do it, right? So wives, submit there, right? Look, verse says it, right? Uh, Like uh, slaves obey. I don't have any slaves, but I better get some because the Bible says it. So I got to take it and I got to apply it right now, right? And, and so, I, by the way, I would say both of those options are, are bad, right? And so what's the third option? Well, I think here's the third option. I think the third option is that maybe what we do is we look at that, we don't dismiss that passage. We don't dismiss the household codes. But maybe what we do is we look for universal truth. Is there universal truth and is there universal principles that are, that are found within that passage that apply both to that cultural situation and to our cultural situation? And if so, what are those universal truths? And what do they look like in 21st century America? So are there universal truths about marriage in the Bible? Are there universal truths about parenting that apply to all cultures across all times? Are there? Are there universal truths about gender roles and about the way that genders and generations should interact with each other? Are there? You see, I believe that in this series, that's what we're really going after. What we're going after is an everyday revolution that starts with the gospel and asks, how does the gospel, how do the universal truths of the gospel affect us where we live here and now? And my hope is that as we go through this series, we will experience, just like they did back in that time, an everyday revolution that transforms the everyday. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do, I want to just kind of end by giving you just a quick that's sort of a, a, a foreshadowing, a little bit of where we're going to go, kind of a taste of where we're going. So in this series, like I said, we're going to be looking at the household codes. And, and we're going to be talking about extremely practical topics. And so next week, we're going to dig into what do the household codes teach about marriage. And we're going to talk about, man, what is God's picture for marriage? What is God's ideal for marriage? Does he have an ideal for marriage? And what does that look like for us in our, in our society today? And we're going to dig at that. We're going to talk about, and not just marriage, we're also going to talk about singleness. And so if you're a single person and you want to get married, or if you're a single person and you don't want to get married, we want to talk about how do you navigate through that time of your life? And are there universal principles of how the gospel informs your singleness? We want to talk about parenting. And, and I know that if you're anything like me, man, I am desperate in, in my parenting to try. I, I, I need all the help I can get. And the household codes contain so much in them, so many incredible universal truths about how the gospel impacts parenting. We're going to talk about things like gender roles and gender identity, which I know is a really fuzzy conversation in the culture that we live in right now. But I believe the Bible paints for us a very beautiful picture of how those things work together. We're going to talk about generations, how younger and older should live and should work together and and the way we should interact with each other. And we're going to go through that together. And here, here's why I'm so passionate about this series. I'll tell you why. Because I know for some of you today, we're, we're talking and we're talking about history and we're talking about Aristotle and we're talking about this stuff. And you might be thinking to yourself, you might be thinking, you know, that's all fascinating and interesting, but dude, my marriage is in trouble. And so I don't really, really care about Aristotle right now. I just care that, that, that we can stay together. I'm just concerned about that. Or maybe you're a person right now and you're like, you know, I hear what you're talking about and you're giving me history and you're talking about all this kind of stuff. But honestly, dude, like, I feel like I'm losing my kids and I'm struggling in my parenting. I don't know what to do. I don't know for some of you right now, you're, you're single and you're like, yeah, this is really interesting and fascinating, but dude, I'm so lonely right now. And I, I know that for, for, as we kind of have this conversation, for some of you, you might be thinking like, what does this have to do with it? But it has so much to do with you. 
that it impacts our everyday life. And so I want to encourage you, as we go through the series together, we want to talk about how the Bible contains timeless truths that can transform your life, can transform your marriage, can transform your parenting, can transform your singleness, can transform everything, every day. Let's pray together. Well, God, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together today. And I'm, I'm so thankful, God, that you have preserved for us in your word um, uh, the household codes. And I know that we live in a culture where at first glance, we will quickly dismiss and, and we will quickly uh, u- use things like the household codes as, uh, as an opportunity to discredit your word. But God, I believe, that, uh, I believe that your word is timeless and I believe that it contains timeless truth within it and that because of that, it has the power to transform. And so I pray that as we journey through this series together, God, that you would allow us to be transformed. Help us to have an openness of heart to be able to see what your picture might be for marriage and for family and for households and for singleness and for parenting and for our everyday life, for work. And so, God, I ask you that, um, that as we go from this place, God, that you would encourage us. I pray that as we engage in this series that you would teach us and, uh, and we anticipate and expect to hear from you. And uh, we love you. I want to pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.